joining us today in our Book Talk segment, a woman who's written a really a fascinating book, uh, kind of about the industry we're in here in radio, called A Word from Our Sponsor, Ad Men Advertising and the Golden Age of Radio. We're joined today by uh, Cynthia Myers from uh, New York City. She's an Associate Professor of Communication at the College of Mount St. Mary in New York City, and she joined us by telephone today. And uh, Professor, good to talk to you, and uh, uh, thanks for joining us today. How are you? I'm pretty good, thanks. Thanks for having me. Good to have a chance to uh, chat with you. Uh, I've always been fascinated uh, with uh, kind of looking back at the, the golden age of radio, kind of uh, was always a fan of those shows that I could, whatever I could find them on tape. And, and this is really uh, even more specific, the, the advertising uh, start of radio, I guess, in the 1920s. Uh, uh, kind of fascinating how uh, the whole advertising business began, right? Well, yeah, actually, because um, radio was the new technology of the 20s, and nobody really knew how to make money from it. And so at first, they just started selling radio sets. Um, but broadcasters were putting on free programming, and they couldn't charge their audiences for the programming because, you know, you could get it for free over the air. So um, it was kind of like the Internet of the 1920s. And broadcasters finally noticed that the people who were willing to pay to reach audiences were advertisers. And so they just started renting the airtime. And then advertisers noticed that um, they could get bigger audiences if they started providing entertainment. So for the next several decades, the advertisers actually controlled, produced, oversaw, chose, and scheduled the entertainment on radio. It is kind of interesting. I was going to say the same thing. It, like the Internet is today, people trying to figure out how to make money on it with uh, content. And I guess television before that, there was a sim similar kind of thing with TV. People didn't really know what to do with it. But, but radio was like that in, uh, I guess, late, I guess the early 1920s. I guess the first station went on, and I think KDKA might have been the first commercial station. So interesting that they didn't really understand how to work advertising then, even though newspapers had been around, but uh, they didn't really know what to do with it. Well, they had a real challenge because um, what happened was the Advertisers turned to their advertising agencies to oversee the program, and ad agencies were specialists in, in print media. They knew how to do a magazine ad. And so then they had to translate those print strategies into radio, which was, you know, an audio medium. And then they had to integrate all those strategies into entertainment, which is not what they were used to doing. And so part of what my book is about is I, look, I went back into all these archives, and I learned how different agencies took different approaches to creating programs that were really designed as advertising vehicles, but were also designed to be entertaining and to draw on audiences. So, for example, J. Walter Thompson was an agency that specialized in celebrity associations, and so they always had lots of big stars on all their shows. And then, then the advertising then was integrated into it, where advertising would talk about how the star uses Lux soap, or um, sometimes the, the, the characters in a program would actually discuss how you know what kind of soap to use. So, for example, in the Gibson family, the lady at the house discusses with her maid what kind of soap to use on her face. And now, before the overture to the second act of the Gibson family, let's step backstage and look in on Sally Gibson and Hilda, her maid, who is helping Sally change for the next scene. Quick, Hilda, hold this dress. I've never been so excited in all my life. It's really wonderful, isn't it, Miss Sally? Too wonderful. That scene in the garden. It made me think of Henry, Miss Sally. Miss Sally, if I had your complexion, do you suppose Henry would... What, Hilda? Tell me what's wrong with my face, Miss Sally. Those red blotches just won't go away. Soap, probably. What kind are you using? Some beauty soap, I suppose. Yes, Miss Sally. That one that promises radiant beauty, glamorous youth, irresistible loveliness. Oh, Miss Sally, I had hoped Henry would. Yes, so did I once. And then I learned the truth. 
Matilda, you can't feed the pores of your skin with beauty oils or mysterious ingredients. No. And many highly perfumed, prettily colored soaps contain fatty acids and free alkali that really irritate and harm your skin. But, Miss Fowler... My doctor recommended ivory. He says all any soap can do is cleanse. And that to protect the fine texture and pores, a soap should cleanse gently. And that to do that, a soap must be pure. He said ivory would help to keep my skin smooth and fine. And Miss Sally, do you think Henry would... Oh, quick, my gloves, Hilda. Is the bell for the second act? No, Hilda will never get a Grecian nose by using a beauty soap. But we do hope she gets Henry. And now for the overture to our second act. All right, Don. Some of those old ads that really was kind of worked into the plot of the shows, and, and you go back to I guess the first big star of radio, Rudy Valley. Uh, I guess what was it the Fleischmann's Yeast Hour? Was that the original sponsor of that? Or was yes. One sponsor yes. for the entire show. Yes, and that was a show written by J. Walter Thompson, the agency, and they set up the show as if as if Rudy Valley was actually running the show. But they produced it, they scripted it, they cast it. They chose the talent. It was like a music variety show. Um, and then they would integrate the commercials where, like, Woody Valley would be walking around his nightclub and he would eavesdrop on a couple, you know, talking about something. And, of course, it would turn out in their conversation that Fleischmann's yeast was this wonderful solution <laughs> for the problems that they were having. Yeast solved all, all, all uh, ailments, I guess, or baking, whatever it was used for back then. Well, <laughs> they claimed all sorts of things for yeast, which, of course, actually were not but um, it, it was one way of getting the advertising in uh, in a way that they thought would not annoy audiences too much. Probably the, the, the greatest radio performer and the biggest star at the beginning, I, I would say. Rudy Valley may be, but I think Jack Benny was the most associated with his products. Uh, Jello was first, and then uh, later on with, with Lucky Strike. But uh, he was a master, as writers were, of working the ads into his shows, wasn't he? Yes, and he was um, produced by Young and Rubicam. And Young and Rubicam was a soft cell agency, and they didn't really believe in hitting people over the head. Um, with the ads so much, and so they, they interwove them all the way through the show, so Jack Benny would open his show saying, Jello again, it's Jack Benny. Um, <laughs> so they would pun on the product, and, you know, Jello was a really good product for, for making jokes about, because it's kind of jiggly and colorful. Right. <laughs> so it was very successful. And then when he moved on to Lucky Strike, his show was produced by BBDO, a different ad agency. And again, they used, like, songs and parodies, um, to advertise um, the cigarettes. So they, they were always sort of making fun. But there were other advertising agencies that didn't believe in humor as an advertising strategy, and they resisted it. So another agency called Black at Sample Humor was a hard sell agency, and they just believed in long, repetitive ads that just told you about the product over and over again because they weren't sure that the audience was paying attention. So, for example, they helped invent soap operas which were these serial dramas, always open-ended, so you tune in tomorrow, and every day you hear two-minute ads going on and on about how you should buy Oxidol, O-X-Y-D-O-L. And here's Oxidol, no more problems again. The true life story of a woman whose life is the same, whose surroundings are the same, whose problems are the same as those of thousands of other women in the world today. A woman who spent all her life taking care of her home, washing and cooking and cleaning and raising her family. And now, her husband's death. It's her head foremost into being the head of the family as well as the mother. 
And we'll hear her true life story every day at the same time, except Saturday and Sunday. Before we hear from our precious today, though, I want to tell you about something else for a minute that will be of vital interest to every housewife listening. About a remarkable new laundry soap discovery that actually makes any other kind of laundry soap old-fashioned and out of date. It's the new, improved Oxidol, spelled O-X-Y-D-O-L, Oxidol. It embodies the latest scientific discovery of the world's greatest soap makers, the Procter & Gamble Company. Whatever soap you've been using in the past, whether it's a granulated soap, a soap flake, or a bar soap, you owe it to yourself to try this new, improved Oxidol. For it makes washing easier, gets the washing done faster, and is safer for colors and fabrics than any other laundry soap now or ever known. Here's what Oxidol will do for you under guarantee of the world's greatest soap maker. Oxidol will wash your clothes 25 to 40% faster, whether you use a tub or the latest improved washing machine. It washes clothes four to five shades whiter by actual scientific test than any other soap can do, and absolutely without scrubbing or boiling. And remember that even your best cotton prints and your children's baby frocks are safe in mild thick Oxidol suds because it embodies a new discovery which keeps all the fast-washing and white-washing qualities in the soap and leaves all the harshness out. It's safe for colors, safe for fabrics, and yet so kind to your hands that, well, you're simply amazed at its cleansing power. And that's where the term soap opera came from, was, was radio. I know people associate that with TV, but, uh, but it started in radio, didn't it? It started in radio, and it started with agencies like Black and Sample Hummer, who specialized in these cereals, and they were designed for housewives. And they assumed the housewives were at home cleaning um, and would be sort of half-listening. And so it was very repetitive. And actually, a lot of people criticized their soap operas because they thought they were kind of condescending and, and um, obnoxious. But, but they actually created them that way on purpose because they were trying to keep the attention of the audience who they assumed would be busy doing other things. You supplied another ad, too, and we're going to play it in a minute. Uh, talking about Jack Benny, another one of the great early radio comedians, was uh, was Fred Allen, who was known to uh, like to ad lib a bit. He didn't really like to follow a script, but he, he would work the ad in occasionally, but kind of make fun of it at the same time, right? Yeah, exactly. And he was also produced by Young and Rubicam, although he liked to complain a lot about his relationship with NBC and <laughs> Young and Rubicam because they were always wanting to, you know, change the script. And so he would do things like he wouldn't give NBC the script until like two hours before the show, you know, and NBC would complain. And, and they were just really trying to make sure that he didn't offend anybody. So one of the, um, one, I think one of the funniest commercials from that period of 1940 is when um, Fred Allen and his announcer um, parody hard sell advertising. And hard sell advertising, they repeat the product name over and over again. And in this commercial, Fred Allen and his announcer, Harry Van Zell, uh, pretend to forget the name of the product, which is South Attica. And so they have this long commercial where they keep forgetting it. And yet, I think it's a very brilliant commercial because the audience knows the name of the sponsor, and the audience is thinking it instead of hearing it. And now, ladies and gentlemen, your attention, please. Someone once said that the world stands aside to make way for the man who knows where he's going. And so tonight, it gives me great pleasure to make way for a man who knows what he's talking about. Harry Von Zell. Don't ever neglect the cold. At the very first sign of a cold, get after it immediately with the faster help of sparkling... Uh, sparkling, uh... What's the name? Fred Allen, remember? No, no, no. 
the name of the... I'm awfully sorry. That eagle has upset me. The, I, I can't remember the name of what it is that helps fight cold faster. It slipped my mind. Well, it'll come to you. Go ahead, Harry. Well, yes. Yes, of course. Ladies and gentlemen, this famous product acts very quickly. Yet it's exceptionally gentle. And since the progress of a cold is very fast, the greater speed of... Uh, uh, what it is I'm talking about is especially important in fighting your cold. And that's not all. This, uh, the name will come to me in a minute. It also helps nature counteract the acidity that so often accompanies a cold. And ladies and gentlemen, you can check these facts with your own doctor. You'd better check the name, too, ladies and gentlemen. Fred, you know what I'm talking about. Well, I don't certainly, you. Harry. You're talking about America's outstanding saline laxative. That's it, Fred. And the name is... The name is, uh, uh, so many physicians recommend it. Yes, yes, and it helps fight colds faster. But what is the name? Well, here's a pretty to-do. Wait, Harry, there must be somebody around here who knows... If there is, would you uh, please tell us uh, confidentially? That's it, Sal Hepatica. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you. There's a, I've, I used to hear that Sal Hepatica. I've heard that that was a, a product uh, before my time, but uh, it's a laxative, isn't it? That was like a, another cure-all. <laughs> yes, yes. And, and in this ad, they make all sorts of product claims for it, which uh, I don't think any laxative uh, uh, maker would make today. Probably not. Um, <laughs> in fact, there was a lot of criticism of laxative advertising on radio. A lot of people thought it was a little indelicate. And so there's a big debate over who, who controlled the programming because the, the advertisers were controlling the programming and the, the broadcasters were just kind of policing them a little bit because broadcasters, as you know, are licensed by the FCC to serve the public interest. Right. So there was a lot of tension over this in the 30s and 40s. And by the time television comes along in the 1950s, um, there's a, a pressure to remove advertiser-controlled programming, but it really doesn't happen until the entire business model changes. Um, television becomes much more expensive to produce, and so advertisers can't finance an entire program. And audiences shift away from radio, comedy, music, and drama to television. So radio then becomes recorded music and talk shows and news, which is much cheaper to produce. And so what happens is that the broadcasters take over programming and the advertisers then just buy, you know, a minute here and there. So television was the reason that uh, advertising became you buy two or three minutes within a show rather than sponsor the entire show. Although there were some TV shows that early on were sponsored by one sponsor, like Milton Borough, Texaco, but that pretty much was the end exactly, of that, right? Exactly, Um Craft Musical, General Electric Theater, uh, DuPont Theater, there were lots of shows. Um, they were very expensive, and it became really clear that um, they had to change the model. And also, there was a lot of, you know, debate over advertiser control of programming. And um, when the networks did take over, the advertisers complained that actually they were the ones offering highbrow cultural programming like live theater and classical music, and the networks were the ones offering sitcoms and westerns. 
Now, as someone who teaches communication and advertising as part of your uh, part of your courses, uh, I think so many people now are so inundated with ads. No matter where you hear them, radio, TV, or, or even internet, uh, it's almost become a glut of advertising. I know you watch a TV show now; it's about forty minutes of content, twenty minutes roughly of commercials. The old days, it was maybe five or six minutes of commercials. So there's almost too much. Are people paying attention to ads? Well, yes, and actually the biggest challenge is that um, people are not watching linear live television as often. And so advertisers are now going back to a lot of these old strategies. They're now integrating their brands into the actual program. They're now creating their own programs. AT&T produced its own teen reality show called That Summer Break. Um, they're now using things like cast commercials, so Modern Family and The Middle, which are two sitcoms. Um, had Target commercials, which included um, the characters from the shows. So a lot of these ad strategies are coming back, in part because advertisers realize that they no longer have audiences' attention during those commercial breaks. Yeah, and they have to interweave again. It yeah. almost is going back to uh, the early days of radio with the Internet. I mean, it's a whole new technology, even though it's been around a while. But I think the, uh, the broadcast end of the Internet, or content end, is, is still relatively new, right? To figure out how to make money on that. Yes. Yes, exactly, because um, it used to be that, um, you know, when people were just listening to regular radio or regular TV, they had to, they had to be in, in front of the set during the time of the program. And today, with digital media, they can time shift. You know, they can listen to it another time, they can skip over the ads, they can do all sorts of things. And so advertisers realize that they have to find, you know, not new ways, but really a lot of old ways to to keep audiences happy and to keep them know, um, attentive so that the advertising message can still get through. Yeah. Well, it's a fascinating book called, again, A Word from Our Sponsor, Admin Advertising and the Golden Age of Radio. And we've been talking with Professor uh, Cynthia Myers today. And uh, uh, Professor, you've got a website. People get a hold of this book. Um, yes. Uh, it's on Amazon.com. Um, and I also have a website that has some audio clips and some pictures and illustrations and that's called a word from our sponsor.wordpress.com. Stan Brock. 30 years ago, I formed Remote Area Medical to help people overseas. But then we found generations of families in America isolated by poverty from the health care they need. Together, we can take dental, vision, and medical help to a million adults and their kids right here at home in the United States of America.